Hey, I'm Max Lamana. I'm a chef and author. Probably like you, I'm increasingly curious about the role all of us play in the big picture of our planet. From the food we buy and eat, to our choice in energy and heating, building materials, cars and transport, our daily lives are connected to the breakdown of our climate. And together, we can make a positive impact. In this series of the Clean Energy Revolution from National Grid, I'll be finding out what we can all do, big or small, to protect and fight against climate breakdown by using cleaner, greener energy that helps us live more sustainably. With the help of my guests, I'll be explaining, exploring, and myth-busting some of the incredible tech and ideas that exist in the future of clean energy. This time, we're talking about the future of travel and transport. There's never been a more exciting time to talk about transport. Change is all around us. In the UK, there's a government commitment for all new cars and vans to be fully zero emissions from 2035. In the US, half of all new US vehicle sales will be electric by 2030. I'm ready for a greener future. I don't own a vehicle, so when I do need to hire a car, I try to always select the EV option. But... Is this country really ready to support my commute? My longer journeys? My trips to the seaside when the battery runs low? Is our power infrastructure ready? To find out how the UK's electric infrastructure is developing, we're starting with an amazing event, the Great British EV Rally. A convoy of electric cars, vans, and trucks has been snaking its way through John O'Groats to Land's End. They've been trying out charging stations from the remotest parts of Scotland to the busiest motorways and cities. Paul Clifton is making the journey for us with his daughter, Frankie. Paul isn't just a BBC transport correspondent. He's also a world record holder in fuel efficient driving. How cool is that? We're joining him in the far north of Scotland. We are at the Castle of May ready to start this epic five-day, 1,300-mile journey. It's ridiculously early. We're all incredibly tired, but we're all incredibly excited as well. There are lots and lots of cars here, lots and lots of teams. Can't wait to get going. We've got Max's vans that are uh, designed to deliver parcels to suburban housing estates. We've got big luxury cars. We've got small and mid-range everyday electric vehicles. Actually, we keep noticing other electric vehicles around, even in the far north of Scotland. The charging infrastructure is very limited. In the north of Scotland, a significant problem for many of the cars here. First stop is all the way along the top of the North Coast 500 to Durness. When I'm driving uh, for economy, I am very, very light on my right foot. Don't touch the brakes at all. I only use regen braking um, so that you're recuperating some of that energy. Economy driving does take a lot of brain power. You have to be on it all the time. You're planning so much further ahead. I've done economy driving for quite a long time. 
So I have a world record for economy driving in a petrol car. I have a world record for economy driving in an electric car. I have a UK record for diesel. Frankie has done competitions with me and won as well. Thank you very much. So we quite like making the point that it's quite easy to drive 10% more efficiently. Anybody can do it with minor changes to driving behavior. We'll check back in on Paul's journey later. And while he motors south, let's turn to the USA. Which, of course, is big. Very big. A trip along Route 66 makes even John O'Groats to Land's End seem like a walk in the park. So the challenge of getting charging power to where it's needed is huge. But things are moving quickly. A 1.2 trillion dollar infrastructure bill has just been passed. It's been described by the White House as the most transformative investment in electric vehicle charging in US history. But what does that mean in practice? For those of us who drive EVs or would like to, Will it mean I could actually drive an EV along Route 66? Or find a charging station in the busiest parts of Manhattan? So I'm joined by Rishi Sundy, who's in Boston. He's the manager of clean transportation for National Grid. Hey, Rishi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Max. Thanks for having me over. So we got loads of questions to ask. But just to get to know you a bit more before we start, how important is sustainability to you personally? It's very important to me. Um, I am very passionate about sustainability and clean energy. That's been my focus for over 10 years now, uh, both professionally and personally. Um, So I've been in the EV space for um, over five years now doing new programs and helping customers with that EV transition. You know, I've been an EV driver for four years now, so I'm very much aware of some of the challenges that EV drivers face on a daily basis. (laughs) I've done a lot of upgrades in my home, you know, fortunate to uh, install solar earlier this year. So I've gone all 100% renewable electricity for my own consumption. Wow. And and, um, so excited about that. Yes. All All of these things take time. They do. It takes time to getting the solar panels, to getting the car, to turning your home into a more cleaner, greener, livable space. It does. It is a journey, and we we understand that. So our customers are not going to do all of these together. You'll you'll probably take on things that you could do today, maybe some in the next six months to one year, and then beyond. So so it is a path. Absolutely. So this area, electric vehicles, is such a huge area, right? It's a bit complex at times. And the U.S. has just passed this bill, this $1.2 trillion legislation. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Um, This is uh, indeed a game changer for the U.S. in many ways, perhaps the most significant investment in the U.S. infrastructure. You know, in the area that I'm focused on um, in, in EVs, This bill will provide something to the order of $18 billion in um, investments that will boost our clean uh, energy economy when it comes to electric vehicles or electric transportation. A big portion of that, which is roughly of the order of um, $7.5 billion, will go towards building a national highway and corridor charging network. 
So this is significant because the U.S. so far does not have national highway network that is supported by the federal government. And this law provides the funding to build this highway charging network that will deploy over half a million charging stations across the country for um, you know EV drivers to complete their journeys and feel comfortable about buying an EV. Wow. When is this rolling into effect and how fast do you think this project will be completed? It is going to take several years. The process has already started. So like many federal programs, you know, there's, uh, there's a schedule built into this that will take a few years to um, see in the marketplace. But um, before we see the future, let's just go back and let's let's see where we are with the landscape today for EVs. So we're talking about cars and vans, personal driving and fleets, right? Does it feel to you that all these areas are moving forwards? Do we feel like things are becoming a little bit cleaner and greener across the board? They are. And uh, we're certainly seeing many more you know, make and models coming in uh, for EVs across the board. But then there's definitely segments or sub-segments within that that you're seeing the most growth in. You know, so I would say the first, you know, what you would call consumer vehicles were the smaller, you know, hatchback style vehicles, compact cars that did attract a lot of early adopters. Um, But in the U.S., you know, most of the vehicle sales in the passenger category are SUVs and pickup trucks. And that has been a gap for a while which is now being addressed by the automakers. There's obviously a lot of excitement for the Ford F-150 Lightning pickup truck um, coming into the market, which is a big development and, and certainly more SUVs coming in as well, which again will make EVs more mainstream. Additionally, there are also certain vehicle types that are coming in. So like the delivery vans, school buses, or other transit buses is also a growing category where there's um, more models available with better ranges, better capabilities that will address some of the concerns that prospective EV drivers or fleet operators have so far. I think because we live in a world where convenience is right in the palm of our hands, we can have food, we can get into a car, travel somewhere, we, we can purchase things so quickly that we as consumers forget that these things take time. Do you feel like there are obstacles currently right now that are taking a little bit more time than they should be? Because this is a huge demand. It is. And um, and yes, there are uh, definitely clear, uh, clear obstacles and have been for a while. But I'm also very hopeful because uh, for a couple of reasons I'll mention. So there are still significant barriers for Uh, consumers, uh, everything from vehicle price, right, Um, and availability has been an issue. The lack of charging infrastructure is a big area. Actually, that's where my company, National Grid, has been uh, very much focused on. Um, And then certainly there's range anxiety that is still prevalent among prospective uh, EV drivers. And again, that's... Hold, hold, sorry, Rishi. Did you just say range, range anxiety? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I had to stop you because I want to know more about that. What's range anxiety? You know, different folks might um, say it a little bit differently, but essentially it's sort of like the fear of running out of battery when you're on the road and not being able to charge, right? Um, because 
you may be away from a charging station or it might be occupied. And so that it is a significant barrier for a lot of customers. And, and we've seen research that shows that it's, it's, it's probably one of the top three factors that's uh, um, still preventing um, folks from buying an EV. What are the other two? The other two would be the price of the vehicle and um, the third one being the lack of charging infrastructure, right? And I think all three are, are really important for us to address. In terms of looking ahead, yes, I'm very hopeful uh, because the industry is working on all three of these areas. Uh, an interesting point in the U.S. is that for the first time in the U.S., um, EV sales hit the 5% threshold as compared to the overall vehicle sales. And while we're a little bit behind parts of Europe and China in that trajectory, it is a very important milestone because that means that we're past that initial phase and if you look at the trajectory of you know, other technologies like the internet, the cell phone, and you can see what that path might be moving forward. So we could be in a situation where there is exponential growth in EVs moving forward. You know, we are in what I would say in the mainstream now. Um, so that that's, makes me very hopeful. It makes me very hopeful too. We're all a piece to the success of EV, right? We need people to buy the cars. We've seen an increase, you know, 5%. We've reached that threshold. What more can we do as consumers, individuals? What can we do to help, you know, speed up that process? Yeah, again, the federal and state governments have uh, certainly a big role to play, uh, but individual con consumers have a lot of, you know, say as well. And certainly, Individuals can uh, demand more infrastructure from their employers, as an example. So there's research that shows that if there is EV charging available at workplaces, that results in a high uh, adoption of EV vehicles among employees. We certainly saw in the case of National Grid as well, uh, when we launched our, our EV employee program, encouraging our own employees to buy EVs and providing the charging at our, our workplaces in many locations. As an individual uh, consumer, if you are a renter, you could request that from your landlord or your property manager. And again, if there is charging available at these multifamilies or apartment buildings, there's a higher likelihood that more renters uh, or residents in those buildings will be buying EVs. So basically... If you want to make a change, all you got to do is ask. Ask the people who are, you know, your your employer, ask your landlord, or ask the, the building manager. All you got to do is ask. Sometime, all you got to do is uh, start the conversation. Amazing. Thanks, Rishi. That was really insightful. All right. Okay. Let's switch gears and check back in with Paul. I think he's somewhere in Scotland right now. Day two, and we have stopped off in Glen Etive, in the drizzle and fairly strong winds. But the point of this place is it is the Skyfall shot. This is where Daniel Craig and Judy Dench get out of the car, stare moodily down the valley um, and have an emotional moment where Daniel Craig does not talk about his childhood. 
there is a real community of EV drivers. Everyone seems to just kind of, when you're at the charging point, if you've got to wait a little while, then you wait a little while. If you only need to charge up to 80%, that's fine. You charge to 80% and you let the person who's waiting know so they can go and plug their car in as well. Um, so it's a real community feel at the moment. As the Great British EV rally rolls on, there's a pretty special stopping off point. The vans headed down west, the cars headed down east, and they met in the Midlands at Rockingham Racetrack. Speedway riders consider Rockingham to be the fastest track in Europe. So, for one afternoon only, it's no longer about economical driving, it's about flooring it. Let's catch up with the ralliers and the National Grid team. I'm Lorna McAteer, Fleet Manager at National Grid. Normally sitting outside doing a podcast would be fraught with diesel noise and engines and everything else, and it's so quiet. You probably hear every now and again some squealing of tyres, because actually there's a bunch of them doing a trial at the moment, weaving in and out, reversing, doing all sorts of other bits and pieces before they head out on the track. In fact, I think you're probably getting more wind noise than you are vehicle noise. Grid's role in the rally... Obviously, as the fleet manager, I've got my own vested interest in proving that these vehicles can be done, making my drivers comfortable because obviously we get a lot of, I can't do my normal job because, so it's like, this van has gone from John O'Groats to Land's End. Of course you can do it. So it's that kind of thing. And we're not going to shy away that more work needs to be done if you want a mass adoption. And the grid is here to support that. We have got the capacity in the grid. We've just got to help everybody else get the right things in the right places at the right time for everybody to change over. There are fans that have had challenges. You know, we've all mucked in. Some of them have like sent a picture in from the co-driver going, oh my gosh, we're in turtle mode. And they can see the charger in front of them and they actually make it. We know cars can do this. Fans are starting to have a bit more difficulty. So what we're trying to do with that is trying to understand the infrastructure that we need for the HGVs as well. The van I'm in at the moment is the tallest out of all the vehicles coming down here. And I've already had to plan a bit more than some of the others because some of the car parks I can't get into. So Leeds, phenomenal park and ride destination, but it's got height restrictions. And the other problem with vans, and slightly on cars, The fast charging network has your connectors. They're very different. The cables aren't necessarily very long. You're in longer vans or your charge point is either at the front or it's at the back right or it's at the back left. And actually not all of the bays have been designed for vehicles that are any bigger than a car. And where people are putting them, they need to give it that little bit more thought. Either thought because we're not all very strong, fit, healthy human beings that can lug these cables around. Some of us might even be in wheelchairs and unable to do this as well. So a little bit more on the accessibility side needs to be considered when you're doing this charging. And a little bit more thought from manufacturers in terms of where am I putting that charge port that makes it easier for someone to drive in? Everyone goes on about range anxiety. It's no longer range anxiety because these batteries are brilliant charge anxiety and that's part of what all this rally is about because as we're driving down well there were 50 of us all in one location so how do all of these vehicles charge at the same time with the limited infrastructure that we've currently got at the moment so we're kind of showcasing we've done the tipping point now we know they work we know range isn't an issue you can plan your journeys there's plenty of apps out there to do that with now it's a case of 
as we're into this mass adoption and more and more people, what are the new challenges that we're going to face? So everybody thinks, I can only do this if there are rapid chargers all over the place. That's not true. So on two occasions, I've actually used the 7 kilowatt chargers overnight because it's destination charging. The vehicle is sleeping right next to where I'm sleeping. So I've used the 7 kilowatts. I've got up in the morning and it's 100% charged. As you're going down the motorway, though, you're going to stop. You're going to eat. And the time it takes you to do that, queue up, get your food, eat it, tidy up afterwards, and then get back to your vehicle, you'll find you'll be at that 80% again already and you can move on your way. So one of the things we're starting to do at National Grid, or we've been doing for a little while now, is getting involved in other activities as well. Being based in Warwick, we've also got the Commonwealth Games coming to where we are. So we're providing 125 dual EV charging stations at those games. They're going to power up to 250 electric vehicles, which will be used to move the athletes and other VIPs around the venues. What we know as well is the Commonwealth Games for 2022, they're intending to become the first carbon neutral sporting event. So it was a natural partnership for us at National Grid as we're working on getting the infrastructure in place to ensure that EVs are viable for everyone across the UK and the Northeast US. So these charging stations that are going in, Commonwealth Games will be powering those from one megawatt battery and ultra green biofuel generators, which are the cleanest battery you can get. When the games are over, the chargers are going to be reused. So we're going to redeploy those into the substations around the country, which means the carbon footprint will be halved as it's shared between us and the games. Also at Rockingham are all sorts of people with an interest in the future of EVs. Truck drivers, motoring journalists, breakdown specialists. We caught up with some of them to get their views on the shift to electric. My first charging experience in Scotland, I had a couple from Holland who stopped me and said, we didn't bring our EV, we weren't sure the infrastructure was here. Has it been easy? No. Is charging still a challenge? Absolutely. So my, my big experience, my big learn, is we need 150 kilowatt chargers. Really rapid, lots of energy, very quickly. I charged last night at 11 o'clock on a 50 kilowatt charger. I was there for an hour and a half just to be able to get down from Manchester to Rockingham. So I was there till half past midnight. Edmund King, president of the AA, the Automobile Association. Yeah, we survey drivers all the time. and always in the top three. You do get the price. Range anxiety used to come up more, but that, that's changed somewhat in, into charger anxiety. People who haven't driven an EV, you know, hear stories about people turning up and the charger not working, and that, that has become a concern. But what's really interesting, what we have found, once people have driven an EV... Once they've done that long trip and they've planned a charge on the way and they've charged on the way and they've got there and back, then their world changes. And then if we've had to reassure EV drivers as well when it comes to breakdown. The AA, obviously, biggest breakdown organisation, that's what we're known for. But not everyone knew that we would cover EVs. And of course we do. Petrol, diesel or EV, we, we cover them. And there, there's a massive misconception. 99% of people in a survey of 15,000 exaggerated by quite a lot the number of EVs that would break down from running out of charge. 
Now it's less than 4% is out of charge. And then of that 4%, 50% of them aren't actually out of charge. They're low on charge and maybe a little bit worried. So, you know, yes, we do get called out for EVs, but we fix more than 80% of EVs at the, at the roadside. In March next year, myself and a co-driver will be driving from Magnetic North Pole to the South Pole in a Nissan Aria, adding 40-inch tyres to the vehicle. Um, so that allows us to travel on the snow in Arctic and Antarctica. We're driving 17,000 miles through Central, South and North America, and that's to show people that long distance is not an issue. Electric vehicles can handle any climates, the cold, the heat, like rough terrains. But what we're also doing is showing people as we travel through, we're going to solar, wind, geothermal battery storage facilities to show people how already we are able to power our world through renewable sustainable energy. I've been driving EVs on and off for 20 years, but I would say six or seven years ago, the EVs weren't all that exciting. Now, today, there are 140 different models on the market. There are another 50-odd coming online this year. There are some brilliant EVs, not brilliant EVs, brilliant cars. There are some incredibly safe cars. People who are, yeah, but you can't have fun in an EV. Well, drive one. I've just driven one on this track here, and I'll tell you what, you can, you can certainly have fun in an EV. So there was some legislation that came out at the end of June, which was around EV smart charging. So it's the new houses when they're built have to have charge points installed now. Those also have to be smart. And all new chargers that are built have to have this smart capability. That smart capability is so that you can go home, you can plug your vehicle in, and then it will be set to certain times within the day. And there is an override switch, so you can trigger it straight away if you have to, because you know you've got to go out. But pretty much it's trying to make it so that everybody can charge at the better times on the grid. So what that ultimately does is it saves you and I money as the end consumer on our bill. Because what we don't then have to do is unnecessarily build stuff for peaks. Of course, transport isn't just cars and vans. When I think about other aspects of life, I'm just as excited by the prospect of clean planes, clean ships, as I am about EVs. The idea of goods and people traveling the world emissions-free is truly incredible. But how far off is this? We sometimes think that the future is this far, far, far away place. But we're expected to see hydrogen-powered aircraft by 2025. That's in three years. For the Clean Energy Revolution podcast, mechanical engineer Dr. Shini Samara has been checking out the wider world of sustainable, clean transport. As an engineer who really cares about climate change, I've often looked at the transport sector and wondered what the future might hold. On-road transportation is one thing, but when it comes to the huge industries of shipping and aviation, they present different challenges. Shipping accounts for around 2-3% to 3% of global greenhouse gas emissions. 
But the International Maritime Organization, the UN's shipping agency, has adopted a deal to curb carbon emissions from ships by at least 50% below 2008 levels by 2050. So that means that investment is now pouring into research to develop clean ship technologies, from fuel cells to biofuels and advanced sail designs. The engineering is fascinating. But though much of what we buy arrives by sea, aviation probably feels a little closer to our own lives. And the crisis which has engulfed the aviation sector since the pandemic has led many to take a second look at the industry. The question on my mind being, is now the time to build back green? I'm hugely excited about the possibility of electric flight. So today I've come to Cranfield Aerospace Solutions, just outside Milton Keynes, where the planes of the future are being developed to meet Director of Engineering, Rob Marsh. We're going into this hangar where in here will be the aircraft that will become the world's first fully certified passenger carrying zero emissions aeroplane. Oh, wow. It's huge, this aircraft hangar. And I see the plane that has hydrogen written yeah. all over it. Can we go to it? Yeah, let's go across. It's a twin-engine, small-passenger aeroplane, so it takes nine passengers, typically. That wingspan is 16 metres, and this is a very well-proven design. It's a workhorse of the aviation world. First of all, it's really unusual to see propellers. haven't seen those on a plane for a while. And do you have hydrogen fuel cells in this aircraft at the moment? No, as we stand today, this is still in its conventional arrangement, its pre-modification, because our engineering team is currently designing the hydrogen fuel cell power propulsion system, um, then we'll strip this aircraft, fit that new propulsion system and test fly this aircraft next year in 2023. I must say, when you think about electric vehicles, you think of a vehicle with a very high-tech battery. So how does hydrogen fit in with this idea of using electricity to power it? Fundamentally, this is still an electric propulsion system in terms of the hydrogen fuel cell system provide the electrical power to drive electric motors. So it's electric motors still driving the propellers as you've seen on the aeroplane. I mean, how is this aircraft going to look different as a result of changing the way it's powered? So we see on the conventional aeroplane, you've got the propellers, one each side, it's a twin engine aircraft, and they effectively sit at the front of what lock engine pods painted green on this aircraft to make them really obvious. And actually, from what you see today, this pod painted green, nicely streamlined, you'll see something very similar when we've converted the aircraft. Also, the propeller will look largely the same. It's, uh, we'll replace that with something very similar, but three blades, because that is more efficient. We'll see some advanced heat exchangers, effectively radiators, like on your car, from using some very advanced technology. So what the conversion involves is we'll remove those conventional piston engines, the gasoline-powered engines. We'll also remove all the systems in the aircraft that store and provide the gasoline fuel to those engines because they become redundant. The gasoline would normally be in the wings, right? Yeah, exactly. The gasoline fuel tanks are in the wings on this aircraft. So we'll fit the hydrogen fuel cell system and the electric propulsion unit in each of those engine nacelles. And the hydrogen fuel cell system is a combination of the hydrogen fuel cell stacks, which perform the electrochemical process to take hydrogen and air and generate the electricity. And also the pumps and compressors uh, and blowers and, and dryers that condition the air and hydrogen to input into the stacks. So in order to get energy out, you need to mix hydrogen with oxygen. Yeah. So the engine is really at eye level right now. And I can almost put my hand into the engine. I can see the air intake or where it's roughly going to be. And if we walk around the back of this engine, 
As we duck and go under the wing, the all-important exhaust where water comes out of here, right? Yeah, exactly. So if you like warm water from a kettle, literally, and that's the only emissions, zero CO2 emissions at the tailpipe of a hydrogen fuel cell system. It's incredible to think that this aircraft will only emit water. And that's the fundamental benefit of a hydrogen fuel cell system. That's why we think this is so attractive or important for the, the world and attractive for the market. So would that small amount of hydrogen sit here then, in the wings? Because we are storing the fuel at very high pressure, you'll see external fuel tanks under the, under the wings, so effectively hanging down as a second pod midway along the wing. Interesting. So that's going to be an obvious design change. Very different, yes. Yeah. 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 How far or for how long can a plane like this fly? Typically with it, with a gasoline-fueled uh, conventional aeroplane, this could fly for sort of six, seven, eight hours. But its use is important because the vast majority of islander operations are short flights of much less than an hour. So with a hydrogen-based system, we can provide the capability to fly for an hour of planned flight, which meets the vast majority of the use of this aeroplane. And do you have plans to increase that range? But we're doing some studies to see if we can extend that a little bit further. Some potential operators need a little bit more range out of the aircraft. When is the plane likely to be ready? Yeah, we'll, we'll fly this, this individual aeroplane as a demonstrator aeroplane in 2023, and then we'll do a design evolution and have it certified for passengers for 2025. There is so much going on here at Cranfield Aerospace Solutions, not just in the hangars and runways. So I've come inside the relatively quiet offices to meet Chief Strategy Officer Jenny Kavanagh. So Jenny, we've seen how planes are going to be modified, but zooming out, how big an opportunity is electric flight? It's a necessity, but it does come with it bigger opportunities. The aviation industry, it's not one of the largest polluters, but it's certainly one of the most high profile. Um, It currently counts about, I think, about 14, 17% of transport compared to 74%, which is cars. But the decarbonisation of this industry is number one priority. And the great thing about this electric aviation is essentially we're dealing with technologies that already exist to some extent, but they need to be developed for aerospace. At the moment, the technologies are only really able to power small aircraft. But the great thing about the electric technologies is that they will reduce the operating costs for operators. There's less maintenance, less downtime, fewer moving parts, so you don't have all of those costs racking up, and also the fuel is cheaper. So what that means is that these small operations that run 9 or 19-seat aircraft, which traditionally, for the last 20, 30 years at least, have been loss-making, now won't be. So what that does is create this opportunity for actually a thriving sub-regional aviation system that's zero emissions and gives people another option other than road and rail. So where you've got those journeys which are either poorly served by road and rail, so either you have to go around some really awkward piece of land or a lake or something like that, or there just there isn't a rail service. Like You try go, going east and west in the UK, it's a nightmare. What those little sub-regional aircraft could do is, is redefine regional connectivity, essentially. It sounds like a total dream solution. Why hasn't it been done before? I think the climate change um, urgency has always been in the future, and now it's very much more urgent. The only reason the jet age happened was because of there was a, a need to create more powerful engines for World War II. 
So it was a, a war, really, that created a massive war that created that new technology. That then came the jet age and, and, and what we've been enjoying for the past 60 years. What we have now is a, uh, a war against climate change, which has created that real drive from governments, from the public, to do something differently. In itself, that nine-seat aircraft is not going to change the world. It's not going to decarbonise aviation on its own, but it's what it facilitates. So you start with the nine-seater, you figure out how you deal with gaseous hydrogen in an airport, and you build on that. And then you get more aircraft and bigger aircraft, and then you move to more airports, and it builds and builds and builds. And in the end, there will be profit involved. There'll be business opportunities. And where where there's a will and there's profit to be made, the human race will do it. And what kind of timescales are we looking at? A small aircraft like ours, we are aiming to get that into commercial service middle of this decade, so 2025, 26. From then on, I would expect to see slightly larger aircraft, maybe 19 seats towards the end of this decade, 27, 28 possibly. If you're looking at the larger regional aircraft, you're new to the 2030s. I mean, Airbus have, have, have made it very clear that their first regional size zero emissions hydrogen powered aircraft will be coming into service in 2035. That's really where it'll start ramping up very quickly. Where do you think people are in terms of accepting this idea that aviation could be low carbon? I suspect that it's not on most people's radars. I don't think people realise actually how close we are. Do you think people care about aviation becoming sustainable? You have all of the coverage you have about the, the flight shamers and, and people who have, have, have refused to do any more flying because of the horrible pollution. Likewise, you have people who couldn't wait to get back on an aircraft to go on holiday. The population, certainly in the UK and Europe, is becoming more and more climate conscious and more and more insistent that industries and government do something about it. How affordable will this technology be? The numbers have to add up. You can't expect airlines to suddenly make a loss from a new technology. So from an operator's perspective, it should be affordable for them. Likewise, for the general public and people who are paying tickets, I don't see that this new technology will necessarily drive a huge hike in ticket prices. Where it gets expensive is in the development of the aircraft themselves and also in the infrastructure. That's where you know government and private investment is absolutely critical. That infrastructure takes money. The most important thing is that we all get there collectively because the great thing about this race is as soon as someone crosses over the winning line, we all win. How significantly will emissions be reduced with this new form of technology? Well, I mean, that depends on the take-up, of course, but let's assume it all goes to plan. The real market to hit is in the narrow bodies. So these are the single-aisle aircraft um, that you'd probably go to, you know, Mallorca on. They produce probably between 40 and 50% of the carbon emissions of all the, all the aircraft because there's so many of them and they go, you know, several thousand miles. But in the end, I mean, you, you, we, we could, in theory, make all aircraft zero emissions, in which case you've got rid of a, what is currently now 3% of global carbon emissions. It's a realistic goal. Eventually, absolutely. Yeah, why not? Why not? You know, I mean, we managed to, we managed to create the jet age and, and we are where we are, so why can't we create the, uh, the hydrogen age? It's, it's well within our grasp. It's so interesting to actually see planes of the future being built and developed and researched and become a reality. I mean, 
2025 is not that far away. You know, we often see the contrails from planes and I, I don't know about you, but I, I often think, gosh, you know, planes are really emitting a lot of carbon and I love traveling. There's always that idea in the back of our minds that it's not the greenest way to travel. But after what I've heard today, I really am convinced that aviation can become net zero. And it's mind boggling to think that aircraft will be electric one day and it's not too far away. That just makes it so exciting. I can't wait. It's been quite a journey. We started in John O'Groats, a small village in Scotland, and we're going to be ending up, well, beginning in a place which I think is really exciting. Before we go, there's just one thing bugging me. Did Paul and Frankie make it to Land's End? It's all over after five days and 1,300 quite challenging miles. And we finally made it. We're here. We finished. It's been quite the experience. And honestly, at some points, I thought we wouldn't even make the whole thing. We've done tiny, wiggly little roads. We've done really boring, long stretches of motorway. What do we take away from this? The cars are great. The vans have struggled a bit because they don't have a huge range and they have to charge a lot. Some of the charging infrastructure isn't there yet. Where there are fast chargers through the central part of the UK, we were absolutely fine. Up in Scotland, the chargers weren't up to a fleet of 45 electric vehicles. Down here in Devon and Cornwall, there were nothing like enough fast chargers. We have hugely enjoyed this week. It's been fun. We've learned loads. We'd love to do it again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Clean Energy Revolution from National Grid. And thanks to all my guests, as well as Dr. Shinny Samara, for helping piece together the reality of clean transport today and in the future. Hopefully, we've answered a lot of the questions or concerns you might have had about EVs. If you'd like to find out more about how clean and green energy can be a part of your world, you can follow National Grid on social media or visit nationalgrid.com. Plus, if you want to use cleaner energy for charging your EV or using your home appliances, you can download When to Plug In, the app which tells you when the electricity coming into your own home will be at its cleanest. Just search When to Plug In on the App Store. Next time on the Clean Energy Revolution podcast, we're discovering how blue carbon, renewable natural gas, and biofuel are changing the game for offsetting energy emissions and providing cleaner energy. It's a case of nature lending a helping hand. See you next time.